Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Pamela Douglas is an award-winning writer with numerous credits in television drama. Her book, Writing the TV Drama Series, now in a fourth edition, has been adopted by network mentoring programs at NBC and CBS and published around the world, translated into German, Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, Korean, and other languages as well. She's been honored with the Humanitas Prize for Between Mother and Daughter from CBS, an original drama which also won nomination for the Writers Guild Award, as well as multiple Emmy nominations and awards. She was a creator of the series Ghost Rider and on the writing staff of many shows, including the Emmy-winning CBS series Frank's Place, A Year in the Life, and Star Trek, The Next Generation. Carol, I understand you think her books are important for anyone writing for television. Absolutely, Claire. Pamela, she really knows how to capture an audience, and we sincerely thank you for joining us, Pamela. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. Well, I'm impressed that NBC and CBS use your book for network mentoring programs. So tell us more about this. Actually, the book is used uh, way beyond those two legacy networks who are not anymore in the forefront of what's happening in television. Uh, The book is used in all of the fellowship programs, and I find that Sometimes it turns up in writers' rooms of shows. Uh, I my hope is that this uh, fourth edition especially has a global reach, as some of the other editions have to a lesser extent, because of how much change and vitality is in television right now. Well, exactly. Um... In the preface, you say, now with the international reach of streaming by satellite and the Internet, we are approaching the original definition of television. So tell us what that is. Well, if you go way back historically to the invention of television, uh, the word derived from a mashup of of Greek and French uh, was meant far vision. And the idea was that it would be possible at one time to see life and people all around the world and would bring in an era of global peace. Clearly that didn't happen. Uh, Those ideas came from the 1920s, actually. Uh, But what is happening now is that because of Netflix especially, also to a lesser degree Amazon, uh, there is a presence of storytelling from not just the U.S., but a series of other important television hubs around the world where we are seeing products of the creations of the indigenous 
people in all of those countries starting to travel and be transmitted so that, for example, in the United States, uh, some of the favorite shows here are actually foreign imports uh, in treatment from uh, came from Israel uh, with a different title uh, to HBO. Um, the Killing came from Denmark uh, to um, to streaming platforms here. But there are many, many, many other examples. Uh, in addition to, of course, all of the imports from uh, the UK, for example, Shameless and many others. Uh, and it goes the other way too. The United States product uh, has been global and all around the world, people know shows that would not seem to relate to them at all, such as Mad Men. Why would somebody be interested in Madison Avenue advertising figures from the 1950s? But they are, and they are not because of the locale, but because of the depth of characterization, because in some ways, human characterization, if well done enough, is universal. Oh, absolutely so. Well, you said the uh, Shameless came from the U.K.? Is that original? Yeah. Tr- yeah, the, the oh. original was a British, uh, uh, actually northern England setting, and it's sort of fascinating to look at uh, the, the the opening of the original and the one done in the U.S., because although the language is identical, that is, the script, the words on the page are identical. The feel is completely different, whereas the uh, U.S. version is comedic. The one uh, from Europe is much darker in tone. And it's fascinating to see the reinterpretation of certain kind of narrative uh, as it goes from country to country and as it's adapted this is one of the uh, interesting phenomena that's going on right now. That's not to lessen the uh, domestic market for product, which is primary for most producers. Exactly. Okay. Well, now what is the definition of television? Because your book starts out to explain that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, a long time ago in the mid-20th century, television was a box in the living room where the family gathered around and uh, watched programming at a specific time when it was sent. That's not television anymore. Sometimes people get stuck in that old idea of uh, of TV programming or TV viewing. We're far, far from that. Uh, in fact, the Writers Guild of America has a definition of television, which is extremely broad, which is that it's anything on any screen that is not in a uh, theatrical setting, which means that television includes not just things on the legacy networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, uh, and also not just everything on cable, whether it's basic cable like AMC or premium cable like HBO, uh, Showtime, Stars, etc. But it also includes everything on uh, Amazon Video, on uh, Netflix, on Hulu, and all of the newly occurring platforms, including, by the way, Facebook that's now gone into the business, and everything on YouTube. 
Uh, it also includes things that uh, are viewed on game boxes as long as they are scripted storytelling as opposed to actually interactive games. Uh, so what we really have is a an explosion of possibility in television, which is innovating at a rate that is hard to keep up with, actually. <laughs> it certainly is. It is for me. Um, and and in the preface, you were talking about how fast they are putting new content out. I can't believe it. Uh, because I get, with Netflix, I get notices every day. Have you seen? And I think, no. I, where are we going to find all this time is what I want to know. Well, it's an interesting question because it's overwhelming. Uh, in a way, it's a good problem to have because there's so much choice uh, from so many places, mostly because of uh, Netflix and its global reach, but but also everything else. This is often described as the era of peak TV, uh, which is beyond uh, you know the golden era of TV or the platinum era of TV. Uh, They've just given up on the precious metals because it's so much everywhere, and you really can't see everything. I'm I'm supposed to be a professional in this area uh, because I have to relay everything that's going on to my students uh, at USC. But I can't keep up myself. Every once in a while somebody says, have you seen? And it's great. <laughs> and I have to say, when <laughs> when can I get that show in? You know, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a marvelous problem to have, but it, it really is an issue, and it leads people to uh, want curatorial help. Actually, so it's uh, it's it's a time for for critics and analysts and professors and other people uh, to say, hey. Uh, I know you're overwhelmed, but you really must see Handmaid's Tale on uh, on Hulu, even though you've never had a Hulu subscription before. It's it's that kind of thing. It is, it is. Where you will buy one platform just to see one show. It's amazing. But when you add up, Pamela, the, what it costs you to go to a movie, the time involved to get there, park, you have to eat, and you're definitely going to get a cold drink or popcorn or whatever. When you add that up, for me, it's like $50 with two people. So when um, Hulu says, give me $15 a month, and you can see four chapters of this, that's cheap. Yeah, uh, it's not just financial. It's also uh, part of a a big, big change in viewing habits. Uh, People tend to rely more and more, as we all know, on social media uh, and watching things online, uh, which changes the idea of how to watch. It also changes the idea of what is a movie and what is television. Uh, As we all know, uh, Netflix is extended beyond what we would think of as traditional television shows into the movie business. They've got uh, Roma now up for an Academy Award as a movie, although it has no uh, theatrical uh, exposure. It's the only place you can see it is Netflix, unless you happen to buy a DVD or something but this is not uh, this is not new totally because HBO 
a series, two-hour limited series or three-hour limited series, even longer series, have always shown as theatrical features uh, in Europe. But blurs the lines even further between movies and television and gives television increasing power to uh, communicate in all forms without ever having to go out of the house. Uh, it's a it's a problem for people who love to go to theaters because the only thing that's uh, usually there are the big blockbuster spectacles. And if that's not your taste, you might as well watch something uh, on, a, on your own screen at home. Absolutely right. And I understand that that explosion uh, of... Uh, blockbusters uh, uh, and the theater is mainly because of the reach uh, that Hollywood is getting 65% now of their income from foreign distribution so that they're choosing films that have an international appeal and can translate into any language over our individual dramas. Like they said, Rain Man would not even have been funded in this day and age for a movie release? Well, it's uh, it works in many ways. Um, if you look at Game of Thrones, for example, which is uh, HBO, and it's a fully American production in the sense that it's written here, its offices are here, but if you really look into the financing of Game of Thrones... Ireland, little known, uh, put in a huge amount. I think it was something like $115 million uh, as an investment in Game of Thrones before it was ever made. Ireland took a gamble, and they thought, you know, we are a small country. This is, I think, Northern Ireland, actually. We're a small country. We don't have all that much money, and we have no uh, television presence. But if we make this investment, we're going to grow our uh, Irish industry, and maybe we'll get some money back. And boy, did they win. Uh, They not only maximized their profits from it by this initial investment, but they also ensured that some of the production would be in their country, which it is, as well as in other countries around the world. Uh, And that would help train crew and people who were there. And that model is not unusual. Uh, From the point of view of a writer who is an American writer, um, uh, people on staffs of shows get two pieces of pressure or advice, which are in some ways contradictory. Uh, From the point of view of the network, especially the legacy networks, the traditional networks, um, they're really getting their money from advertisers in this country. They don't care that much about international sales because they're not profiting from that. So a writer would get pressure to include jokes that mean something in to an American audience but wouldn't travel, uh, or depth of characters or certain kinds of characterizations that are interesting to American audience or recognizable to American audience but wouldn't travel. Uh, And yet at the other side, the production company is making its money from uh, from ancillary sales and foreign rights and adaptations around the world. So 
the message to writers there is, oh no, um, you know, you that joke won't mean anything in uh, in Korea. That joke <laughs> won't mean anything in uh, Germany. So what they what they are saying then is, let's do things that are visible and understandable anywhere. That includes sometimes action, it includes things like magic, it includes things like fantasy, it includes certain relationships that are always universal. Uh, Love is understood everywhere, revenge is understood everywhere. Uh, But there are two competing messages that writers get when they're actually on a real staff of a real show, and somehow they have to satisfy both. Wow. That's, that could be tough. Talking about writers, one of my favorite writers is Taylor Sheridan, who did Come Hell or High Water and Frozen, uh, or the, that uh, about the north. What was it? Frozen River? Oh, Wind River it was. Now, I started looking, where's his next feature? Well, forget about a feature. He partnered with another writer, and they wrote a, a, a film, a series of films for Paramount, which is now Yellowstone. And one of, and I didn't even know Paramount had their own streaming service, and I had to get it so I could see his work. But he went from theater to television, where it used to be you could go, you, it was the other way around. Everybody's going to television now because, first of all, that's where the jobs are. Uh, some of it is a simple amount, uh, a matter of volume. Uh, there aren't very many features made anymore. There are certain ones that get a lot of notice, and there certainly are features made, including art films that play on the festival circuit and win, you know, awards, Sundance and whatever. Uh, and student filmmakers often try to get their way in with a short film or with a low-budget film uh, that plays at festivals to try to get some prizes. But for the mass audience, uh, there are it's really fewer features. From a point of view of creativity and innovation, there's really no challenge, although there are some marvelous uh, features made usually around award time uh, in every year. The real innovation is all in television. Uh, this is, includes not only style and form, it also includes the kinds of subjects. If you look at Amazon doing Transparent, for example, uh, about a family where the dad uh, is a cross-dresser, uh, you'd never see that on a, uh, a legacy network. Uh, but Transparent did very well and won awards. That's one of many, many examples. There is really an open door on te- in television, partly because of the pl- proliferation of markets that don't need the broad audience in the old way. And because of that, you can do niche programming, which uh, is willing to try something that only a small audience would like as long as that small audience subscribes. 
definitely you you say that the tiny passionate audiences now have power in your book writing the TV drama series so can can you just tell us a bit about that i see that with my documentaries uh because they they may have five or six small tiny devoted audiences and i've had to <clears throat> bring them back from oh i want a theatrical release and all this to know you have a community around your film and you need to get it to that community well that's that's correct uh, there's actually a business reason that uh, this change has happened. Uh, the economic model of the uh, the net, the old time networks, was uh, numbers that they had to uh, rely on advertisers who wanted great numbers of viewers. So they ended up with uh, what's sometimes referred to as LOP, least offensive programming. Uh, and dumbed everything down so that no one would get offended by anything ever, which meant that they couldn't try anything because someone might be upset or it might be uh, too extreme or because of nudity or because of uh, ideas and or, or characterizations, anti-heroes, for example. Uh, so that led to a very flat marketplace in the uh, traditional networks where it was driven by fear of offending anyone and wanting to have great numbers of people. Now, if you look at the opposite model, which is a subscription model, they don't care if you like everything on their network or on their platform as long as you like one thing. And uh, Handmaid's Tale is a clear example that uh, I think it's a great series based of course on the uh, on the underlying book and i had never uh subscribed to hulu because i don't need it i can get everything i want on on you know netflix or amazon or hbo uh or on lots of other places but the only way to see handmaid's tale was by a subscription, so I'm spending eleven dollars and ninety nine cents a month to watch <laughs> one show. Uh, and every once in a while, I say, "Gee, what else do they have there? Is there something else I could like?" Well, to date, I haven't found something else I could like, but who knows? Maybe I will, and that helps them monetize their other shows. However, this idea is actually not uh, restrictive. This idea actually opens the door uh, to try things that you'd never try. And I think the Amazon experiment, which I greatly doubted at first, I mean, I said to myself, why would I trust the value or the quality of a television show from some place that wants to sell me a vacuum cleaner? Uh, it really, and they had a very questionable model at first, which had to do with crowdsourcing and crowd evaluation which is antithetical to quality they've come away from that and actually have been quite daring uh i i like homecoming very much and that's by the way goes back to your idea of people coming from feature films to television even in the acting model um yes julia yes. is is starring in uh, homecoming on amazon who would have thunk you know 
Uh, but yes. she does a fine job, and it's a valuable show, and it's a great acting opportunity for her. Or look at uh, Big Little Lies with that huge star cast of women, uh, Reese Witherspoon, uh, Nicole Kidman. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving out other great people who are on it. Um, a marvelous, marvelous cast of women who have starred in many feature films. Uh, now, of course, HBO has always gotten top talent anyway, but here we are with people flocking to television, not because they can't get other work, but because that's where they can do quality work. And that's true of writers as well. If you want to write something great uh, and you're not stuck in the you know, blockbuster mode or that's not your favorite thing, go to television because that's not just where the jobs are, but it's where the talent is. In right. My uh, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to cover here. In writing for TV drama series, your book says that the screenwriters for films have moved to writing for television, saying things we could never do in films we can do in television, right? Yep, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It's not true on every network. You have to look at the platform, and not everything fits everywhere. But, hey, give it a try. You know, don't censor yourself anymore. Good. Well, I loved your book, and I uh, want to start with four myths about television that you cover in your chapter entitled, What's So Special About TV Drama Series? So could you mm-hmm. share those? Yeah. Um, this fourth edition, uh, which is having four editions of a book is, uh, you know, pretty amazing uh, yes. these days, actually. But uh I go through four myths that go way back uh, of the way people used to think of television. I can quickly go through the four of them. The first one is that TV is small movies. Uh, And there was a time that might have been a little bit true, uh, and it may be that the screens uh, are often smaller on television. Now people sometimes watch shows on their cell phone. And that screen is definitely smaller than a theatrical feature. But it's not true that you just take a movie and shrink it. It's actually the idea of uh, screen size has been getting larger at home with the large flat screens and smaller in some theaters, so they're actually almost comparable. But quite apart from screen size, it's also a matter of the kind of material you can do. In television, because you might have 13 hours, for example, for a season uh, on uh, on Netflix, or for example, or eight hours, or 22 hours on legacy networks, uh, it gives you the opportunity to actually write a much larger show than in feature films. If you have a character who has to arc and complete a voyage in two hours, that limits the vertical experience of the depth of character. If you can roll out secrets that keep being revealed in 8 or 12 or 13 or 22 episodes or 100 episodes, look how much we can learn about the person. So TV is actually larger than features, not smaller. Uh, The second myth is that TV is cheap here. And indeed, there are some feature, some blockbuster features, films 
uh, whose budget is larger than the uh, annual uh, budget of a small country or even a medium-sized country. (laughs) Uh, But... Actually, television, uh, in, unless you're on YouTube, isn't cheap. Uh, Game of Thrones has a huge budget, and so do other shows. The budget is not a concern so much in television as it once was in the olden days, where really you were stuck on a closed set, and it could never rain in this town because they couldn't make you know have water, and you. <laughs> You know, there are a lot of things that in the olden days made television uh, look inexpensive, and some of that is technological change. Now, actually, the technology used to shoot television is identical uh, to features. You could shoot uh, with the quality of iPhones and other technology now. You could shoot a whole feature film on your phone. you don't need to do that, and you don't need to do that in television, but the budgets are not small, uh, especially on streaming. Look at YouTube, and the budgets are tiny, but that's a that's a specialized, uh, you know, small market, actually. Not small in viewership. Lots of people watch uh, little web series on YouTube, but it's small in intention, It's and it's small in... Uh, technologically and financially, but that's not what we think of when we think of TV. Um, The third myth I uh, debunk in the book is that you can't do that on TV, and it used to be true. It used to be, uh, if you're looking back into the, like, 1950s, uh, where the idea was, oh, no, 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 uh, standards and practices is going to tell you that married people must sleep in separate beds because this would be <laughs> offensive otherwise, uh, yeah. which was the way it was in the 1950s. Uh, but now none of that exists. I mean, if you look at anything on HBO especially or any of the streaming services, uh, you can you can do – you can do anything, nudity, uh, unfortunately, violence, uh, subject matter. Uh, it's it's all absolutely available. And, again, there's no need to censor yourself unless you are on uh, a platform that asks for that. If you're doing something on Hallmark, for example, and you know there's a certain kind of audience, that particular audience would be offended by lots of things, but that's only because you chose to write something for Hallmark. It would not be true if you wrote that same thing for Showtime, for example, or any any place else. So, uh, no, you can do anything on TV. In fact, you can do more on TV uh, in terms of time jumps, in terms of the nature of the story. Most of all, in, the kinds of the, in terms of the kinds of characters, uh, if you look at something like Orange is the New Black, uh, on uh, HBO, you find, did I say HBO? I'm sorry, uh, Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. Right. Right. Um, you find that you've got a multi ethnic cast as the series goes on, and many of the episodes uh, have uh, primary leads that are Hispanic or African American. And that is uh, something that you would not have seen on legacy television, but is very much a part of the sort of population that you uh, you get for streaming, which is everybody of every kind. And the fourth and last of these uh, 
debunk things, is TV is a wasteland. And that comes, again, from 20th century thinking when uh, you had a, a criticism that everything was dumbed down. Uh, it goes back to uh, Newton Minow in 1961, who declared uh, TV, in quote, a vast wasteland, because he was referring to shows like Bonanza and Flintstones and Mr. Ed, uh, when there were only three networks, each smaller than now, uh, and the share, shared airwaves uh, were considered a scarce commodity, and that... Uh, you really had, since there were only three compelling networks, that they had to be dedicated to informing and elevating the public, so he just didn't think a talking horse should be something <laughs> given to the public. Uh, that is but so I, far I away. Show, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's way, way back. Everything is a wasteland if you do wasteland products. I mean, there's some garbage on television. No, no doubt about it. Just look at the CW. Now, there's a lot of really bad television. There's a lot of really bad movies. There's a lot of really bad everything. The question is that there's everything, and there's great, there's greatness also. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Came back. I didn't know if, if the line had dropped. Okay. But uh, let's talk about this being your fourth edition because I seldom do you see books in the film industry that go into a fourth edition. So first, congratulations. And second, what's new in this edition? Thank you very much. Um, I had to do a fourth edition because of the changes in television. Uh, I wrote the first edition in 2005 uh, this is a different world. At that time I wrote the first edition, uh, I was telling writers that things were in four acts with a teaser, and this is the structure. And that was mostly true because there was mostly only uh, television with act breaks because they were television with commercials, with a few exceptions. Uh, very quickly after that first edition was out, ABC at the time went to six acts instead of four, and uh, and basic cable was waking up. Well, premium cable was waking up. So I had to quickly write a second edition. That stayed around for a while, but meanwhile, uh, here comes everything that was going on in a AMC with Breaking Bad uh, and uh, Mad Men, Mad Men first, then Breaking Bad. And I realized, wow, we are beginning to be in a different world now where uh, there are outlets that were never imagined and kinds of programming that was never imagined. So I expanded the third edition to include everything that was happening in cable. And that stayed around for a number of years, but I began to be increasingly uncomfortable telling my students uh, that I teach at, uh, I'm a professor at USC, School of Cinematic Arts, and I have uh, MFA students who are going directly in the business, and I was increasingly uncomfortable telling them to read that third edition because I myself had been blindsided by the streaming revolution, and I didn't know uh, back in 2011 when the third edition came out 
that uh, Netflix was going to come on with House of Cards, uh, followed by Orange is the New Black, followed by everything else, or that Amazon was going to suddenly go into the originals uh, marketplace, or that all of these other outlets were going to open up. Not to mention that the uh, traditional networks were going to get on board with streaming and realize that they could not depend on their uh, boxes at home, and they had to offer streaming as well. So I felt that, you know, to honor the industry and what I was telling the readers, I really had to bring the book more up to date. And in the process of doing that, not only did I cover all of the new outlets and how it is to write for all of the new outlets, but also what was happening globally because the integration of domestic and global product uh, has really taken over the perspective on the industry. So there's almost a third of the book is on international television. Uh, I really hope people get the fourth edition and not the third because this is what's telling them what's happening now. And while there's some good advice on writing in the third, which I've continued in the fourth edition, this is this is the word now. This is what's happening. <laughs> well, you better get it quick. It could change next year. I mean, it just keeps dynamically changing. I know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, listen, I'm very well aware of that, and I don't plan on any fifth edition anytime soon. <laughs> but I am no. completely aware that whatever I wrote on the day of publication, something else happened. Exactly. <laughs> All right, yeah. well... I, I want you to help us understand how shows get on TV. So just give us the essence of the process, process because your book covers everything in detail. I'm just hoping we could get an overview of how shows get on TV. What do people need to do? Well, the first thing is that you really need to learn, if I'm speaking to people out there, uh, who are just beginners and trying to get into television, let's say you've seen something, say, oh, I could write that. I really implore you to learn your craft, that as easy as it may look, you say, oh, I could write that. Y- you can't. You need to actually do your homework in the same sense that somebody who wants to be a dentist wouldn't say, well, I have teeth. So I think I know I can, or I've been to a dentist, so I think I can do dentistry. You wouldn't let them near your face. Um, and so I, I recommend that wherever you are, there are screenwriting classes offered, whether it's, you don't have to start with television. You can write with any, start with any kind of screenwriting at a good school. You've got to take some classes. Uh, you have to learn your craft. Read my book, of course, um, but in addition, you want feedback from others who are reading your work, uh, and you want a workshop setting where it's uh, a uh, where it's a shared process that somebody else who is writing something reads what you wrote, you read what they wrote, and you speak to each other about what is effective. So, get a class, get a workshop, get friends to read your work. So. That's piece one, is know what you're doing before you even start. Once you get that and you really know how to write a screenplay, 
you really know how to write an episode of a television series. Uh, you want to write uh, two kinds of things. One is you want to write a speculative episode uh, of a show that is currently on the air and probably something that has been nominated for an Emmy, so you know you're imitating quality. And then get their scripts online where you can read how the authors wrote them and try to write an episode making believe you were on the staff. You won't be able to sell that. This is a learning exercise, though many uh, agents and producers would like to see evidence that you know how to do it because you can't work unless you know the skills. Then you really need to write a pilot, a pilot for an original series uh, of your own and read in the book about how to write a pilot, look at other pilots that are on, and see if you can get yourself uh, to something under 60 pages or around 60 pages that introduces characters that will have layers and layers to peel, as well as a good, solid narrative drive in your pilot. Once you have your, uh, your spec episode and your pilot and your workshop that's reading your work and a class that's giving you feedback, you're ready to start getting out into the world. Now, your first aim is to see if you can get on the staff of a show. Nobody is going to get out there, write a pilot, place it, sell it, make a million dollars, and get an Emmy Award. It, it doesn't work that way. What happens is that you climb a ladder. The best way into the business right now are through the fellowship programs that are offered. Uh, there's a tremendous number of them. Uh, the, all of the networks have them, and so does Sundance, uh, a, uh, Sundance, HBO, um, I'm trying to remember some of the others, Warner Brothers, uh, there's ABC Disney. Some of them are aimed at diversity. Some of them are open to everybody. But the ticket to get into these fellowships, it's a prize that you win, is uh, you must have a pilot and you must have a spec episode. And you possibly should have some other scripts to show, too. And then you get interviewed. It's a very competitive process, but there are quite a few fellowships. If you get into one of them, what they do is essentially postgraduate education. Uh, it's They're usually six-month programs uh, with a mentored additional script, usually for one of the shows that they have. And then if you get through that well, you are placed on a series uh, where the fellowship pays your salary, so they're encouraged to hire you. And then you're on a show, and then you, you're going. Uh, if you do well, you'll have a, a script uh that you've written to that show, you'll have a credit, and you can move on to other shows. And that's generally the way that works. And then you get promoted every year if you do well. If you can't do any of that, if you don't win a fellowship, the next thing to do is to take any job on any show that you like because you need to get in the door. To get in the door, you just need to be present. You need to be in Los Angeles. And so I, I'm sorry for people who are somewhere else uh, you're ultimately going to be, need to be here. Uh, and then you work on the show in absolutely any capacity, including secretary, uh, PA, whatever you can get, because once you're there, you will meet people, and once you meet people, uh, they will read your work or give you guidance, or at least you'll see how how it works and if this is really the field for you. 
And again, you aim to get promoted within the show or use that experience to go to another show. And it goes up and up and up that way. There are some end runs. Um, people who aren't television-based sometimes take awards that they've won from uh, the art film circuit. And if you've done very well and you've done uh, good, you've won some prizes and got some good exposure uh, at the film festivals, uh, you can go, sometimes go that route. And some shows are happy to have somebody uh, who's not from the mainstream, uh, but who can show uh, real talent and a good script. And the same thing, by the way, is sometimes true of plays. Uh, a play that is not not small, uh, a play that shows ability with characterization, with storytelling, and has attracted some critical reviews can sometimes be a calling card to get on the staff of a show as well uh, on an entry level. So those are uh, those are some of the ways that people work. Sometimes people are well off uh, writing a novel instead. If you can get the novel published and if you can get critical acclaim, almost all new series now uh, have some uh, under, underlying work that they're based on. It can be a novel, it can be a movie, it can be a play, uh, because it guarantees longevity of the storyline, especially with novels. You won't get a chance to write for screen if you've never written for screen, but you can get in the mix. Uh, and getting in the mix is the first start. So I, th- oh, I that's think that's brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant. Get in the mix. I love that. You have to. You, it's like learning how to swim. You just have to jump in, and wherever you land in that pond, take that position and go from there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You got to get into it. You can't sit home and say and dream about being a writer or dream about writing for television, and it's going to happen. Doesn't work that way. Right. Well, Pamela, please tell us about the process of how a writer goes from concept to pilot or concept to episode to eventually concept to show. And I know we don't have much time left, but whatever you can give us as an understanding of that, I would really appreciate it. Right. Well, it's pretty much what I just said in terms of the development process, but in terms of writing, uh, yeah. the idea is that What's bought and sold are not uh, the overall concept. What's bought and sold and what is your calling card is your understanding of human nature. And really, I would invest time on character development, on real honest people. Uh, and that word honesty in choosing what you're going to write is, is key. Uh, people often use the word authentic the idea of saying, I'm going to make a kill and I'm going to make a lot of money uh, by imitating something that's on, and I know that detectives always do this or car chases or whatever else, that doesn't work. Uh, for one thing, everybody else has tried it, and it doesn't single you out from the mob. What does work is something you have to offer that only you offer. As far as being a, becoming a showrunner, uh, you're not going to become a showrunner out the gate. You just won't. Unless you're doing a web series for YouTube uh, and you can run your own show there, 
the chances that that's going to parlay into uh, a real series on a real television network is slight. So it does sometimes happen. Uh, I would say, honestly, write well and write a lot. And once you're really good, as I said before, uh, grow by getting in the mix and seeing what it's like to really work. And I think you get enlightenment that way. Okay, that sounds wonderful. Now, you cover how a script is crafted in the book, but uh, you go through every aspect. But I was just wondering if we could just cover the one section that's called Who You Know, because that's how I started my film grant, because I'd been in the business so many years in Hollywood that I knew people and I just asked for favors and I got my film grant started and after three, four years, they were, they were there for me every year. They sent, many of those people are still with me 20 years later. So who you know is important, right? It is, but it's not a matter of socializing only. The example I give in the book is uh, that I had an idea for something Carol? and I had previously worked with an an executive at, uh, I think at that point it was CBS. And so I was able to make a phone call but and pitch it on the phone. But that wasn't based on a personal friendship. I didn't socialize with her. Uh, I didn't uh, have family with her. It was based on mutual respect. So I think that although it's true that friends you make in school or friends you make in your workshop – will sometimes give you uh, a a little heads up that, hey, they're hiring over there, or, uh, you know, do you know this development executive? She's looking for something about that subject now. So that that, uh, tip line uh, is helpful. But honestly, people who spend their lives, uh, you know, just hanging out uh, aren't really going to get anywhere. It's absolutely based on the respect for your work. Then you can come back to somebody and say, uh, you liked my script or you liked my play um, that you saw, and thank you so much for your compliments. Would you now read this script that I have that's new? Or uh, may I have a meeting with you to tell you about my new project? that kind of relationship building is important. Also, if you're on a staff, you find that even if it's a show that's not very good, uh, you find that the person in the next cubicle may not be better off than you are right then and there. You might be doing a dialogue polish or uh, just looking for production sites or something. But that person, that show is going to end, and that person is going to, end up on another show, and if you've been a good collaborator, uh, they might say, you know, uh, I'm on this other show now, Uh, there's an opening, come on over. So I think the key word here is not friendship, the key word here is collaboration and being somebody who others like to work with. Now the question is, why would they like to work with you? And the answer to that is not because you're so great, it's because you enable them to be so great. So that is a key to being on staff or being in relationships with other creative people. 
showing off that you're smarter than they are isn't going to get you anywhere. It might get you a good script for the uh, that the showrunner might award you, but in terms of relationship building, it has to do enabling has to do with enabling others who will then enable you. So it's that kind of relationship rather than the social scene. Uh, now people do talk about having a large social network presence, and I think that does help so that you're letting your fans or friends or associates know what you're doing so you are actually a participant. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not as if this is not skill-based. And so, I, again, I tell people, uh, be a good writer first. Do your work. Do your homework before you worry about uh, seeing if your friend will give you a job when, you don't, when you're not qualified for it. So get yourself qualified. Get yourself qualified. Great. Mm-hmm. And enable others to do a good job from right. your participation. This is so right. important. That's the most important thing of all because I, I work with a woman who is a producer, and she hires people for a lot of shows. And she will call and get people's references. And the one thing she wants to know is how they get along with the people on the set. That's Anyone right. who has any bad comment, that person is out and someone else is in, even if their skills and their bio doesn't have what the what the bad person had. The whole thing with her is she wants someone who gets along with other people, and that's how that's it right. works in Hollywood. Yes. Well, that's right, and in other businesses as well. Yes, too, but this co-creator concept is what it's all about, and you Mm -hmm. have to enable others to do a good job. Pamela, thank you so much. You've given us a wealth of knowledge and information today. I sincerely appreciate this. We want to know where we can buy Writing the TV Drama Series 4th Edition. Uh, Thank you for asking. Amazon actually is probably the easiest place to buy it. I've had a little trouble with Amazon uh, in how they place the book right now, so you have to actually write in the whole title, Writing the TV Drama Series, Fourth Edition, or Writing the TV Drama Series by Pamela Douglas. Uh, for some reason, it's, uh, that, that's the best way to access it. Uh, but that's, that's where to buy it these days. Many bookstores have closed, uh, in uh, in times when bookstores existed, you could order it at a bookstore, and many universities have it as well. But you know what? Just go to Amazon. You can also just go to the publisher and buy it directly from the publisher, uh, which is uh, Michael Weezy, uh, MWP, uh, and... Uh, it's, it's uh, mwp.com. It's that simple. mwp.com will get you to the publisher, and you can also buy the book there. Yes, wonderful. Thank you so much. From all of the writers out there, you have given us so much insight and confidence and knowledge. We sincerely appreciate the work you do. Well, thank you, Carolyn. It's been delightful talking to you. Okay, thank you, Claire. And thank Very you to welcome, Claire, all right. Oh, Best of luck. Yeah. I'm sure okay. you won't have any trouble with this book. It should travel really well around the world. I hope so. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Bye now. Take care. Bye.
too. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Carol. And to our listeners, I want to tell you how grateful we are for all the donations that you've given at FromTheHeartProductions.com to support our podcast. And also, we'd love to hear from you with ideas for more shows. What are some topics you'd like covered? Who, who would you like to hear interviewed? We're very, very open to your feedback, so just let us know. And join us again next week for the Art of Film Funding podcast. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.